This morning I want to uh, continue with the series which I've been doing the uh, last five times I've been here uh, on the theme of things are not as they appear. And each time I've opened up uh, a new area and also given practices each time uh, with which to explore a particular territory. And I've, I've structured the series in terms of five main ways that things are not as they appear. And today I'm going to intend to complete the series. I'll give a review of the first four ways that things are not as they appear and then add the fifth. And they're all quite, quite related. Okay. So the theme itself comes very directly out of the main metaphor that we get from the Buddha, which is that the process of learning that we might call uh, spiritual growth and is uh, identified as a process of awakening, waking up. The Buddha is the one who is awake. And so the implication is that uh, until we're Buddhas, we're more or less asleep. So that can be, that can be uh, perplexing as to what that means. It can be a little bit um, striking, right? Striking. What does it mean that we're asleep? And <clears throat> the emphasis in the teachings is, is very much that there is a fundamental ignorance that we all share. And that cutting through that ignorance is the heart, we might say, of the spiritual path, the spiritual journey, to, to use those metaphors. And it's not an ignorance about information or facts or particular knowledge, but it's an ignorance about the very nature of things and the very nature of our being, the very nature of phenomena. And in this series, I've tried to unpack in a few different ways what that ignorance looks like. There are different ways we could do that, but I've tried to identify these ways in which things are not as they appear. I tried to bring these out in, way, in, in a way in which the first three of them have at least some accessible ways that we can understand them. And so the first way that things are not as they appear, at least uh, often, is that we see through the lens of the personal self quite often in ways that are distorting. In other words, we see things through our own interests, our own perspectives, and our own selectivity. And some of the more obvious examples of that, they're both more obvious ways that things are not as they appear because we see through the personal, the lens of the personal self. They're more obvious ways and they're more subtle ways that this is true. The more obvious ways would be that when I have some dispute with someone, I'm typically 
I'll speak for myself, but see if this is true for you, I'm rather selective in what I tune into in terms of the other person's behavior. I don't tune, tune in objectively to all the good things and all the bad things with that person. Rather, I tune in to what the problem is and evidence that would support my strong position that this person is a threat to humanity. <laughs> And I may do that, also see that kind of selectivity if I'm hard on myself. If I'm hard on myself, I will hear criticisms of myself and suck them in. And I may hear praise for myself or good words and hardly let them register if I have those tendencies to uh, be hard on myself. And so we can see that kind of selectivity. We can uh, uh, see how we just, out of our own interest, we see certain things and we totally ignore others. And that's, this is commonplace, right? This is ordinary, but it makes it clear that in some ways we're not seeing things simply objectively as they are. Right? And of course, in many ways, there can be distortions. We don't. We don't see, uh, we may not see our good points or the other person's good points if we have a problem. The second way that things are not as they appear is similar, which is that we see through the lens of our uh, social and cultural conditioning. Again, the first two are pretty easy to see, somewhat commonplace. We see through the lens of our social conditioning, uh, some of it's in terms of our culture, we notice things that other people from other cultures wouldn't notice. We pick up on things. We have understandings of social etiquette, what's appropriate, all sorts of meanings we pick up on through our culture. You know, and then we also have, uh, as we know, social conditioning around gender, race, age, religion, all sorts of things that predispose us to see in a certain way, often in a distorted way, which, which causes suffering, right? And we know that, that we see through uh, the lens of our social conditioning in ways which can be distorting, again, very selective. Um, you know, our media in many ways directs us to see certain things and not to see certain other things, right? Again, that's kind of a commonplace. We, we know that, but it's important to be aware that this is one of the ways that things are not as they appear. And some of that conditioning is quite hard to get at. Some of it we can see more clearly, some of it's very, very subtle, and we can't see so well, you know, particularly what our prejudices are. We can't really see those so well, even if we want to. Right? So it's, uh, it's uh, a challenging area. Uh, the third area that I looked at was the area of impermanence. That we tend to see things and ourselves and objects as permanent rather than impermanent. Partly because of the way that our minds and perception solidify uh, phenomena. We don't see actually how things arise and pass away so, so quickly. You know, 
our concepts and our language and our, the way our minds work, we make things more permanent than they actually are. And I've, I've mentioned that uh, you know, there, there are phenomena of perception. One of them is called flicker fusion, in which we actually take a flickering reality and make it uh, into solid objects. The reality is a little bit more like the old film where there's 24 frames a second and if we actually slow down the film we start seeing the individual frames. And we, but at 24 frames a second there's the illusion of continuity. And our perception is pretty similar. Right? We have the illusion of permanence, of continuity, of coherence and so forth. And I'll talk more about that in, in a little while. So, again, with all of, all of these first three, there are practices that we can do to investigate the areas. We can obviously try to be mindful of where we're selective, how we see through the lens of the personal self. We can bring attention to that, try to check in. Okay, I have a conflict. Let me watch my selectivity. Pretty interesting. Watch the way that I you know, might be hard on myself or not hard on myself and what I... I'm interested in, what I'm not interested in, what I tune into, what I don't tune into. And we can start to also study our own social conditioning, some of which we're aware of, some of which we're not so aware of. Right? And we can study that, and it's actually a very important area to uh, focus on. Similarly, uh, partly in the practices like the ones we did um, this morning, we can look at impermanence and become more tuned in to the impermanent flow of phenomena, and this is actually a core area of Buddhist practice. Because it's taken that lack of clear seeing of impermanence is one of the fundamental areas of our confusion and delusion, an area we don't see clearly. And so we can do um, very simple practices. You know, one, again, one way to work with it is simply to tune in one sense at a time to the flow of phenomena. You can do this at home. And I think uh, when we did this a few weeks ago, someone reported back that there was incredible joy just from watching the flow of phenomena. You can sit by a creek or a river and just be with the flow. You can be with the sounds. You can listen to simple music and just be with the flow of sounds. You can be with body sensations. And um, it can be a form of practice that you do uh, over a period of time, even in retreat, you know, I've, I've sometimes just been with impermanence for days on end, just hanging out with that. It's illuminating. You know, and uh, for that, uh, concentration plays a role because part of the reason that things seem permanent is that our minds are not very concentrated and we're especially living through the medium of, of concepts and language, which tends to lead us to see things as solid, distinct, separate, and so forth. And that's related to the fourth area, the fourth way in which things are not as they appear, which I looked at the last two times, which is that we tend to see distinct individual objects and distinct individual beings as if all objects independently exist and all of us as individuals somehow independently exist and have these uh, essential cores that make us who we are. 
And this is getting into a more challenging zone, right? More challenging area. But the teachings are very clear that that level of appearance is actually not accurate. And we can actually have resources from, uh, as I've mentioned, from uh, the sciences as well as the philosophy and sociology of the last few centuries that point out the extent to which the uh, world is much more constructed than we think it is, and that our experience is constructed. And Buddhist practice also points in that direction through the uh, concept of shunya or shunyata, usually translated as empty or emptiness. This is a very confusing topic, which I'll talk about in a moment, but a very ordinary English way to understand that is to say that that nothing is independently existing, but everything is in relationship and is constructed by causes and conditions. And that even our language, we use, uh, we use various kinds of constructions. And I, I talked some about the uh, neuroscientific or neuropsychological uh, basis for this, which is very interesting. That, uh, you know, that our brains have all sorts of metaphors and models which we're continually using to structure perception. You know? And most of this is happening beneath, beneath consciousness. The brain really likes simplicity and coherence and order. It likes routines. And it, and it will easily project a well-known routine onto things just for the sake of coherence. You know, and we, we live like that. You know, and some of this is also connected with the, some curiosities about human eyes, such as the fact that we actually have an after image in our retina when we look out that makes us, the image actually stay for a longer period than with other species. So things seem like they're more solid, they're less flickering at the level of perception which is because of some qualities of, um, of vision. And there's this way, as I mentioned, that we sort of stitch together uh, the way things are, making them into a kind, of, uh, a kind of whole. And we have a better understanding of really of how we more actively construct the world. The model that used to be there in certainly in Western culture, probably in others, that our eyes somehow pick up on the underlying nature of things and almost like take a picture of things and then transmit that picture to the brain. That used to be the model until fairly recently that, on the, that was the basis for psychology and science. And that's almost universally rejected now. And so it's much more that we actively construct our perception based on memories and pragmatic interests. So I'll give you an example of this that I heard. I, I heard a, a very, uh, I'll, I'll refer you to a really interesting uh, TED talk. Some of you may know this, by a uh, researcher named Anil Seth, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H, uh, who, who's a researcher at the University of Sussex in uh, Britain. And he has a really good, uh, um, TED Talk on YouTube. And the title of it is, um, let's see, the title of it is 
Um, perception is a controlled hallucination. <laughs> Meaning that we're projecting all the time what we see on, because of familiarity. He says that uh, a true hallucination is uncontrolled perception. And that when we have a controlled, mutually agreed upon hallucination, we call that reality. So check it out. One of the examples he gave just of the constructed nature of perception, I want to see if I can use one of his examples right now. And this is the way, um, uh, okay, tell me, um, tell me if, the, if my sounds make any sense. I'll do it again. Does that make any sense to anyone? No. Okay. Um, this is an example of his. Um, Brexit is a bad idea. Now listen. Brexit is a bad idea. There was no meaning before, but now you had some information and you could project on to the same thing you were getting earlier and suddenly it has meaning. That's essentially how we live. <laughs> Something like that, right? Check out the YouTube uh, TED Talk. And so, and there's, there's a lot about that that we're continually uh, projecting on. Um, another, another example he gave that was very similar was an experiment where you have a fake hand and you have a person with the real hand here and then kind of a fake plastic hand in the same place that the other hand would be, maybe on the knee. And the, the real hand maybe is behind the back. And you, the researcher will stroke the real hand with a feather. And it's very common for the person to feel sensations that are attributed to the fake hand. And in, in the uh, video, uh, someone actually comes and puts something right next to the fake hand and the person pulls back as if it's actually my hand because there's some kind of projection onto the nature of things. And so when, when the uh, Buddhas are talking about emptiness, I think they're talking about something quite similar. That when we actually pin things down, there's, and this is done more through meditation, that there is no underlying substrate, but that everything is a lot of very quickly occurring phenomena, which, which are not the same things as objects or selves. The main way that the Buddha taught this was pointing us to look at what he called the aggregates, which are like the constituents of experience beneath the level, uh, beneath the usual way of seeing experience. So he said, look at sensations, Look at form, look at a sense of pleasant and unpleasant, look at your thoughts and emotions. And this is a lot of what we do in meditation. We actually notice the constituents of experience just by themselves as occurring without a sense of self. And then we can see how in experience what the sense of self seems to be are a lot of thoughts which are kind of stitching things together, liking or disliking, and or making commentaries. Okay, so, so I'm 
kind of bringing a lot of more advanced teachings in here, so I hope, hope this is uh, not too quick. But this is what we looked at last time, and the recording, I think, is on, uh, I was going to say YouTube, it's on Dharmacy. <laughs> and, so, um, and so the same thing occurs with phenomena, that in the Buddhist tradition it was understood that phenomena also uh, are, or, are in our ordinary perception are conceptualized, taken to be trees, chairs, and objects and so forth, but that at a certain level of meditative experience, when, we've, when we're no longer working with concepts, we can experience phenomena in a different way, in which concepts are not appearing in which concepts have fallen away, the level of concentration is high enough, and we experience phenomena, in, this, in the Buddhist tradition, this is said, experience them as empty, as just occurring without labels, without concepts, and they sometimes appear more as these micro-moments, or these micro-sensations, things happening like, kind of like uh, pixelated reality, you know, as if... Uh, and, and we can, when we get to that level of concentration, we can then start to see how we put together those micro-moments into a solid concept of a tree and actually look at a tree. So it's actually, in a sense, paralleling what the neuroscientists are telling us. I think that's why there's some very interesting dialogues. Because from the uh, point of view of our meditation practice, seeing in the construct, into the constructed nature of things is helpful for two main reasons. One is that we can, we can see that we actually have more responsibility than we thought for how we construct things. And we can say what are skillful constructions and what are unskillful constructions. Because we have, you know, constructions are valuable. It's not like we're saying get rid of all constructions and live all the time in an unconstructed world. It would be hard to drive home if that was my guidance. <laughs> right, we, need, we need those constructions and we need them to be skillful, but we also have a lot of constructions that are unskillful, you know, related to blaming of self. A lot of our conflicts have very unskillful constructions. A lot of our social constructions are very unskillful and cause suffering. Can we be more skillful and have our constructions based on you know, on uh, kindness, warmth, compassion, and not causing harm. So the first reason that we go to this level of depth is to be more skillful with our constructions. The second reason is that we actually can gain a certain level of freedom by touching these deeper levels of experience and going into ways of seeing which are, uh, can be very freeing on all sorts of levels. Very freeing from notions of who I am that may maybe come from wounds from our childhood. You go to these deeper levels and you see, oh, that's not quite who I am. Right? The other side of it is that um, when we go into this uh, deconstructed or unconstructed way of seeing, it's not just a way of seeing, but there's also a quality that's very much emphasized of there being compassion and love. So we also open up to that. It's not just uh, the wisdom side of seeing clearly, but also 
we bring, as we touch those depths, there's also love and compassion of a greater nature. And you think of when you have most felt love, there probably wasn't a lot of construction going on in your mind and your being. Right? If you think of those moments, it was just something very, very full without a lot of thinking. Yeah. Even if it may have been directed towards another being or towards, towards oneself. The last theme goes yet a little bit more deeply. And this last theme is that we don't see things as they are, things are not as they appear, because we tend to see a separation between ourselves and everything else, where ultimately there is non-separation. Another way of saying this, to use some different concepts, is to say we live in a dualistic universe. We tend to, with our conditioning, and that, that again, is a kind of construction and the kind of awakened awareness that practice points to, points towards a non-dualistic way of seeing and be, even being in the world. So that's the last theme that I want to bring out. Again, this is, more, this is a more advanced theme and uh, I don't teach on it that much, but I wanted to bring it in. Or if I teach on it, it's more with more advanced retreats where I teach it at the, teach it at the end. So this is really looking into what's the nature of the awakened mind. What's the nature of awakening? And the most common way of talking about this in the teachings of the Buddha is a little more negatively. It's talking about overcoming uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. When we work through greed, hatred, and delusion, that's what it means to be awake. So the most common understanding is to see it more negatively and not to talk about so much about what it means positively, aside from identifying certain qualities which are there, which are in one teaching called the factors of awakening, such as mindfulness, um, interest and inquiry, joy, uh, energy, concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. Those are the positive qualities, but those are the dimensions of awakening, but we don't always talk very much about what the experience of awakening is. It's more left talked about more negatively, the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is from the uh, text called the Dhammapada, one of the most beloved texts. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, the ones I just mentioned, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, and have destroyed the toxins, the, the negative qualities of experience. They are luminous, and they are completely liberated in this life. So aside from talking about luminosity, there's not too much pointing to what awakening looks like. And there are also teachings uh, in both the uh, discourses of the Buddha and in later teachings, which actually point to, uh, a little more directly, to what a kind of awakened presence or awareness looks like. So, for example, 
There's a chant which is often given uh, in the text. It goes like this. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Bachatangwe Ditapo Winyuhiti Translation. <laughs> Translation. Discovered and well proclaimed by the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, apparent here and now, timeless, come and see, leading onward on the path, experienceable by the wise, it's pointing to a kind of experience. And there's also someone on the margins of the discourse of the Buddha appointing to a kind of awareness which is called uh, signless, boundless, and luminous. That is, uh, that is pointing to something like a kind of awakened awareness. It's non-conceptual, but it's understood more positively in terms of being boundless and luminous. It also has the quality of being non-conceptual and non-dualistic. And I think many of us may have had moments of this. Maybe in the forest or in the mountains, we may have had moments, maybe in being very close to another, some, some, all the concepts fall away. People sometimes have this in sports, have these experiences of what we might call a kind of awakened awareness where everything falls away. People in marathons sometimes say, as I was in my 25th mile, my perception radically changed and everything was light. Right? And they just open up in that way. And we may have had experiences like that. Typically passing, right? typically passing. Some people call them mystical experiences, call them by other names. It also points to a kind of practice which is accessible and which we can develop to have this way of seeing and way of awareness. And again, it points to the way that uh, the more dualistic way of seeing things, self and other, is actually a kind of construction. That most of the way most of us live most of the time in which here am I, Donald, manipulating the world, seeing the world in this way, seeing objects, seeing everything out there, having me in here, seeing other people as different is a kind of construction and is not the way that things are when we go to the depths. And that is possible to develop first in meditation and then gradually in daily life a different way of seeing. This is from a former Spirit Rock teacher who's originally from England, named Machan Amaro. Some of you may have met him. And he has a very nice book on the uh, connection between this way of practicing and the teachings of the Buddha, as well as some of the teachings from the tradition that he's part of, the Thai forest tradition. He said, the aim of the practice is subjectless, objectless awareness. The heart rests in the quality of open, spacious knowing and there is the recognition of the mind's own intrinsic nature, empty, lucid, awake, and bright. And I led a, a very brief guided practice that uh, gives one of the ways that we might access this awareness in meditation. 
In fact, uh, his teacher, Achan Cha, from Thailand, um, and there'll be a celebration of Achan Cha's life uh, here on May 27th, by the way, the whole day. Achan Cha was a great teacher, teacher of Jack Kornfield, uh, Achan Amaro, quite a number of others. I, I, I met him once and studied with him. And he learned of this approach by going to a famous teacher that he had heard of named Achan Man. In, in Thai, Achan just means teacher. This is teacher Man, teacher Cha. And Achan Cha heard of this great teacher named Achan Man who had been wandering for 30 or 40 years through Thailand and what's now Burma, wandering through the forest and having a bunch of people he studied with and heard these great things about this teacher. So Achan Cha, you know, went by foot and found him. And uh, one of the things that Achan Man ascertained right at the beginning of their meeting, it was a little bit humorous, they found out that they were in different uh, sects S-E-C-T-S, of Thai Buddhism. And they had regulations that if you were in a different sect, you could only study with someone from the different sect for, for three days. <laughs> and so Achan Cha said, I'll, I'll change sects. He said, Achan uh, Man said, no, we, we need good people in your, your sect. <laughs> and so he said, I'll give you the really brief instructions. <laughs> right, so he said, here they are. Here are the basic instructions for really this depth level of awareness, which if you, if you look in, there's a, a biography about Chan Man, and Chan Man talked of this, uh, what I'm calling awakened awareness. He called it the radiant mind and saw this as really the aim of practice to stabilize there. And so um, a Chan Man gave a Chan Cha the uh, guidance for how to access this. And here, the, here it is. It's pretty similar to what I gave you in the guided practice. It's basically said, normally, we tune in all the time to phenomena in a dualistic way. We're hanging out with the trees, you know, our knees, and it's always me being aware of something else. There's a dualistic structure. There's a subject and an object. He said, see if you can notice that when we tune into objects and phenomena, there's actually a knowing of the phenomena that we don't tune into. Can you make the phenomena the background and make the awareness of the phenomena the foreground and really tune into the awareness? In a sense, we're being aware of awareness. Let the phenomena go to the background, let the awareness go to the foreground, and tune in there in a way in which you're being aware of awareness. Nachan Man said, that's it. And so Achan Cha went and practiced with those very simple instructions, like for nine or ten years. Right, that's, uh, uh, and then became a great teacher and influenced Spirit Rock and so forth. Yeah. Without that short discussion that Achan Man had with Achan Cha, there probably would be no spirit rock. But the... Could you repeat that, those instructions? Could I repeat those short instructions? Yes. I not only could, but I will. 
<laughs> so I couldn't resist. I think that's, you know, I think I've mentioned sometime that I have had formal clown training and sometimes my clown persona just, just jumps on something. You know, sometimes unskillfully, sometimes skillfully. <laughs> anyway, um, and so, yeah, the instructions were simple and you can try this in your practice. Normally, we have this dualistic structure where we're just knowing phenomena. That's, that's ordinary life, right? That's the vast majority of the time of most of our waking experience. We're just uh, with phenomena uh, and we're knowing them and there's a knower and a known. You know, we could say there's a subject and an object, the subject being the knower. And even with our mindfulness practice, we have that structure. We have that structure, we are mindful of whatever is appearing. So that structure can be very useful, right? Uh, but that's the dominant structure that we have in our lives. And in that structure, there's a knower and a known, but most of the time, we pay 100% of the attention to the phenomena, to the objects, to what's known. And he said, when you, and the mind has to be fairly quiet when you do this, but when your mind is fairly quiet, so I would do this at the end of a sitting, for example, as, as we did today. When the mind is relatively quiet, and maybe you've spent some time just tracking phenomena, maybe like we did, we tracked phenomena by being aware of sounds and then sensations, and then we saw if we could just be with the flow of phenomena and just tracking it. So the mind has to be somewhat quiet just to track the flow of phenomena. And then the instructions would be, be with the, the flow of phenomena. You can even try this right now as you're listening. Be with the flow of phenomena. Maybe right now just be with the flow of sounds, listening to the sounds. And then begin to notice that there's a knower who's knowing all of this. That the foreground right now is the uh, knowing of phenomena, but in the background is the knower. And can we start tuning in so that what was formerly the background of knowing her awareness becomes the foreground? And so in a sense, we're being aware of awareness. And it can sometimes appear as a, an expansive spaciousness. One of the metaphors for this kind of awareness in many of the traditions, it's like space. Can you just tune into the aware, awareness and let the phenomena be in the background? If you have your eyes open or even eyes closed, there'll be some phenomena, there's sounds, there's some things you're seeing. Can you let those be in the background and really have the awareness be the foreground? So that's one kind of instruction. There, in various traditions, there are all sorts of other ways to access that kind of non-dualistic awareness. You know, it's done in various ways. One way it's sometimes done is by uh, startling people, just for the moment. 
because it's taken that this is our natural awareness and actually when we're startled, like if I just went, there'd be a split second in which we were in non-conceptual awareness and just in this open awareness. So some of the instructions that I've got from some teachers, like especially some Tibetan teachers, they say, really study when you yawn. The moment right after a yawn, there's a kind of open awareness before you go back to ordinary uh, way of uh, seeing and perception. Or watch when you're really, really exhausted and your mind just can't work at all. Study your awareness then, it could be similar. So there's a whole way of doing that and there are also ways that we learn how increasingly just to let go of all the conceptualizing and dualistic structures, just to let go. And we sometimes say, just, okay, just let go. So typically this would be done in the context of a retreat. So I don't suggest that you do this extensively on your own. Do it a little bit. See how it is. The best thing is to do it with the instruction of a teacher. That's, but this can give you a little taste. Also, as one is tuning into this kind of awareness, all we really look for at first are glimpses. And that's plenty. That's enough. We look for some glimpses. Don't try to make them last longer. Having a five-second glimpse is the way we start to access this awareness, kind of awareness. And so this is talked about by the Buddha. It's not at the center of the teachings, but it is, it's there in the teachings. And it's connected. This kind of awareness is connected with transforming suffering as well. Because this is a non-grasping open awareness. Again, the other side of this awareness is the understanding that our usual way of proceeding and seeing everything as different and separate from me is a kind of construction. That is not the way things ultimately are. So this is in the Thai forest tradition, uh, talked about as by Achan Man as the radiant mind, Achan Cha talked about it as the one who knows. He used language like this. This is from Achan Man. When the mind becomes a pure mind, the center disappears. And we can't say that that mind is above or below in any particular spot because it is awareness that is pure awareness that is subtle and profound, above and beyond any and all conventions. So you see, it's beyond concepts. It's a non-conceptual awareness in which there's not the conceptual framework of I and the other, self and other, and so forth. So it's, in, uh, it's there in the Thai forest tradition, and it's also, they're very much in other tr- traditions, other non-Buddhist traditions, but it's very much developed. And many of the people in the Thai forest tradition, very connected with Spirit Rock, talk about this. A uh, uh, contemporary teacher on Chan Samedo talks about natural awareness. Um, in the uh, Tibetan tradition, this is sometimes talked about as what's translated as awakened awareness, the word called Rigpa in some of the Tibetan traditions, particularly uh, Dzogchen. This is from one of the great teachers bringing out that kind of awareness from the 14th century, named Longchenpa. Sensory appearances are unrestricted. 
awareness is evident and naturally occurring. Since the genuine state of uncontrived rest is unobscured and unobstructed, with no division into outer and inner, it is evident as the supreme nature of phenomena. Let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state, with an easygoing attitude, like a person who has nothing to do. This is from the Zen tradition, from about the, I think about the uh, 10th or 11th century, from a teacher named Huangzi uh, Zenju. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. It's similar to what was said in the other approaches. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peaks. In darkness it is most bright, while hidden all the more manifest. So, a little bit of the Zen paradoxical language. And so maybe I'll, I'll finish just with a passage which has been very striking to me from the, um, actually from the Tibetan tradition, uh, which really points to how there's a kind of, for all of us, at some point we don't, we're not aware of this core of awareness, of awakened awareness, and out of that we get confused. This is the text. In the beginning, delusion arises in sentient beings. This is from not not seeing clearly, this awareness. When awakened non-dual awareness does not arise, the mind becomes numb and dull. This failure to recognize awakened awareness is the first ignorance and the cause of every evil, every, I'm sorry, every ill. Instantly we become unconscious, our thoughts wander aimlessly, one is seized by hope and fear. This begets the duality of I and other, friend and enemy, and through clinging this becomes habitual. Descending from that comes samsara, that's the round of habitual unconscious action. In the increasing inflictions of the five poisons, there is no end to this. <laughs> so, to unpack that, it's kind of a sequence that, for whatever reason, we're disconnected from this awakened awareness, which is taken to be a kind of a ground. We become increasingly unconscious. We become numb and dull. Out of that come a kind of hope and fear. We want something good, we don't want something, this emerges. Then, when there's hope and fear, there's a dualism of self and other. So this is taken as a kind of progression that actually isn't necessary, but this is kind of explaining ordinary habitual experience. Out of the duality comes reactivity, uh, grabbing hold and pushing away. They become habitual tendencies. And then one lives with this cycle of habitual tendencies, which is called samsara. And the habitual tendencies and behaviors are connected with greed, hatred, delusion, pride, envy. These are called the five poisons. And they keep on going, unless we break the cycles. So, a lot of our practice, I name seven steps. Our practice reverses those seven steps. That's really how we can understand our practice. We reverse the seven steps by living ethically, starting to be mindful, 
starting not to be always driven by our reactivity, starting to see the roots of our reactivity, starting to live increasingly non-reactively, developing more equanimity, watching our constructions of self and other, friend and enemy, developing loving-kindness where we start to try to have the aspiration to be loving and kind to all beings. We start breaking down the constructions which had been developed because we got lost from the, from the awakened awareness. So we, in a sense, there are seven steps by which we fall into habitual ignorance. And there we could say we reverse the steps and we come more towards that awakened awareness. And that really describes uh, the essence of our practice, is that reversal. So I think I'll end just with two readings, one pointing to this kind of awareness, uh, from more from the point of view of spacious awareness and wisdom, and the other more from the point of view of the kind heart. This is really the direction of the practice. The first is from the 16th century Tibetan tradition. Dagpo Tashi Namgyal said this, uh, that our sort of our true mind is open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, and lucid like a crystal. And then from the point of view of the heart, we have the Metta Sutta, where it's said that so, with a boundless heart, you can get the sense of the expansiveness of the heart-mind. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. <laughs> Through that sense of that open, non-dualistic awareness, here being more the spirit of love and caring. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded freed from hatred and ill will. So ultimately that awareness is the expression of deep wisdom, but also deep love and caring. And that could be said to be the direction of our practice. And we just go step by step in that direction. Seeing all the ways in which things have been assumed to appear accurately, and we notice how things are not as they appear always. So. So any reflections uh, or questions of any kind? We can then, we'll, we'll use the mics. So this was a little bit more of an overview, both of the depths, of some of the depths of practice, but also a pointing to how when we have that sense of the depths, we can also have a sense of the sequential steps of practice. And you know, how we go from, how we essentially deconstruct one level of our confusion after another on the way to um, experiencing awakening more, more and more. I guess we bring, do we bring the mics to the person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
Can you relate the concept of awakened awareness to physical pain? To physical pain. Uh, what would physical pain look like when there's awakened awareness? Yes. Yeah. Um, in the actual awakened awareness, the, the physical pain would appear as um, typically more as a kind of intense energy or a certain kind of energy in one's mind that was uh, not taken personally. That was not taken personally. Whether it would be skillful to go there would be sort of a decision about wisdom, right? That, it, you, know, if, you know, if there is a lot of pain occurring, it might be the wisest just to try to help the situation. But sometimes there is physical pain and we can't do anything about it. And to be able to go to the depths of awareness and be with it can sometimes be freeing because we don't have all the uh, identification with the pain or saying, that's my pain, oh, poor me, and so forth. So it would be free of the concepts. We wouldn't even be calling it pain. It would appear more like... Uh, a kind of uh, energy, sometimes, you know, sometimes intense, depending on the level of intensity, it would appear more like a kind of uh, energy of sensation. And um, again, we'd be relatively free of the commentary about the pain, which, which could be very, very significant. I've mentioned sometimes that one of the areas where mindfulness, let alone awakened awareness, was brought in was in the area of chronic pain because for some types of chronic pain, as much of 80% of what people experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but the reaction. It's not true of all forms of chronic pain, but some forms, it, the 80% is reaction. So if you eliminate the 80%, you still have some pain, but it's huge, right? And so if people had access to awakened awareness, I think the main uh, positive There'd be a few positive results. One of the main ones would be that we would uh, just be with the original stimulus or stimuli without the commentary and the reactions, which could be extremely uh, helpful you know, to have that experience. How do you do that? How do you do that? What is the journey to that? Well, we start simply with mindfulness. <laughs> mindfulness there's sort of a direct path from ordinary mindfulness if we follow it to that kind of awakened awareness. And we can have a lot of the effects of being uh, skillful with pain, whether physical pain or emotional pain, with ordinary mindfulness. In other words, we can, can I just be with the sensations? And we start by training, as it were, with ordinary non-intense pain, right? And we learn how can I just be with a little bit of shoulder pain, that isn't going to do any damage, it's not a deep problem, but, you know, I don't like it. And can I just be with that without the commentary, the conceptualization, and so forth? That's how we train. And so we learn how to uh, do that uh, just with ordinary mindfulness, how to be still with that 20% and, not, and increasingly let go of the 80%. So we train just with ordinary mindfulness, and 
In that sense, for pain, I, I think the awakened awareness isn't particularly necessary. Just ordinary mindfulness does a very good job with, with that. But then, you know, the, uh, the training to get to that deeper level of awareness, again, best done with a teacher. But, you know, so for example, I teach a retreat uh, a few times a year, usually once a year here, uh, in which we spend, a few, it's a, usually a seven to nine day retreat, and towards the end we spend at least uh, two or three days just focused on cultivating that awakened awareness. Yeah. The current retreat is, uh, which is going to start in about 10 days, uh, has a waiting list, so it's not full. Or it is full, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not empty. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry, I'm getting my clown is taking over a little bit. Don't be careful. Okay, please. Yeah. When I'm hearing you talk about pain, chronic pain, I'm yeah. thinking about like uh, in a certain jobs, like firemen, nurses. Yeah. You know, they might have severe pain, but they just move through. They don't even know they have the pain. Yeah. And they discover it afterwards. It's not mindfulness. Yeah. But it's kind of bringing up what you're saying about the reactivity yeah. with pain yeah. and just the mind. They're, like I said, they're not doing mindfulness. They're not doing mindfulness of the pain, but in a sense, they're, they're with, that, with that example. Can I kind of jump in? Yes. Yeah. That they're, they're more almost saying, I'm letting go of the reactivity. The pain is still in the field, but they're actually two things. They're focusing elsewhere. They're not focusing on the pain. And then they're letting go. They're letting go of the reaction, sort of saying, you know, implicitly, they might not say it explicitly, but implicitly they're saying, you know, this is not helpful. You know, it's not, this is, you know, there's some pain there. The same thing with athletes, right? You're running a marathon. Exactly. It's not helpful to make commentary, you know, near the end of a marathon. You know, this is really painful. Let me think for a while about the, you know, when I'm going to have a bath after the marathon's over. Well, I don't like this, you know. Why did I become a marathoner? You know, they just, you know, kind of drop the reactions and then actually focus elsewhere, I think. So it's almost a shock when you actually start, your mind starts relating to the pain. That's right, yeah. Like at the end of a marathon, people just, oh, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, you know, but, and then they probably have a lot of relaxation still left over, right? Yeah. Um, actually, I have had the experience that you're talking about yeah. in terms of transforming pain. So I used to get, I don't even know what it was, I guess maybe sciatica or something, and it yeah. really felt like knives in my calves. Yeah. And it would always happen in the middle of the night, and I would just get up and pace and cry. And then I started just sitting and breathing into it and just not going away from it at all, but yeah. breathing into it. And it takes a while, but when I eventually would, it would go from the pain to more like a throbbing, but yeah. not necessarily a painful throbbing. So I felt like the energy that you're talking about, so it was more I was aware of energy in my body. Yeah, yeah. There are actually a lot of different ways that we could work. We could also sometimes even bringing the awareness to a place of uh, physical pain. You know, to the extent that it can really relax the body, the pain can actually lessen. You know, and then again, we can experience it a little bit differently. 
Um, you know, I think we, we know the extent to which when we call something pain, even that is applying a concept and it's a kind of construction and it can be sometimes helpful not even to use that word, right? We know, we, so we, we're starting to see how does, how does language influence my experience, even in that example. We can see if I, you know, it's, it's a little bit like that uh, Roadrunner cartoon, you know, where, the, where the, the Roadrunner goes off the cliff and is actually hanging above the air but doesn't realize it, right? Which is meaning non-conceptualization, and then looks down, realizes that the roadrunner is over empty space, and at that point there's conceptualization, and the roadrunner falls, but before there was conceptualization, it didn't happen, and it's like, you know, it doesn't exactly work like that in real life, but it's making a point, right? That, that it, it takes the conceptualization sometimes to actually have a, you know, a problem develop. It's interesting. So we're looking a lot at the uh, constructed nature of things and again important to hold everything with um, with compassion you know when you look at this or if you take a look at that YouTube video what perception is a controlled hallucination it's kind of a provocative way of talking about the theme but but I think backed up by uh, by very good science right that when we look at this, it's also really important to hold everything with some warmth and compassion, because it kind of talks, it makes the human situation a little bit more, what, precarious and vulnerable, right? And so to hold everything with compassion is really crucial for going into this area. And so to stay with loving kindness, <laughs> compassion practice, and so forth. Okay. So we're at time. I could keep on going for a long time. Um, so let's just uh, sit for a moment or two and bring to mind whatever felt helpful from the morning and wherever, where you'd like to go with your next steps in your practice, maybe related to the themes, what intentions come out of the morning. So sit with what was helpful and sit with your intentions just for a moment or two. And then we'll go to our closing. And just before that, something I forgot, that the Tibetan text I read at the end is a text called The Prayer of Kuntazampa, which is a, uh, it's actually a compassion text. So we offer the benefits of our morning, of our time together, to ourselves, to everyone in our life, and then Beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, in this hall, out into the world, we remember that the horizon of our practice is to offer the benefit of our practice to all beings, which includes us. Thank you for your kind attention and interest and uh, we'll keep going.